Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Few artists come close to the prolific accomplishments and influence on future generations. As my guest today, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer, Todd Rundgren. Following his work in the band Naz, Rundgren went solo and received widespread acclaim with his 1972 double album, Something Anything. Rundgren wrote, produced, and played Almost every instrument on the album, it landed him a top 10 hit with Hello, It's Me and features this track, I Saw the Light. Something Anything brought Rundgren such commercial success that in its wake he abandoned conventional pop music to push the boundaries of his creativity. The resulting album, A Wizard, A True Star, was influenced by soul, jazz, funk, and various psychedelics. The album established Rundgren as a pioneer of prog rock and electronic music. Todd Rundgren continued to explore musical styles in his numerous solo releases and with his band Utopia. He was also innovative behind the scenes with computer technology and as a prominent producer for bands like XTC, The New York Dolls, and Meatloaf. I sort of backed into producing. It was an unusual situation and I started very young and I had a band in Philadelphia and we got signed when I was like 19 years old. I was very much into like what goes into making records and we thought that English producers were better than American producers. We really didn't know what a producer did. And we thought he was responsible mostly for the sound, misunderstanding that the engineer is responsible for the sound. The producer, well, American producer, particularly in those days, was not necessarily a creative contributor to the process. He was there to make sure that the session didn't go over budget. 
you know, and in the old days, pre-Beatles, let's say, people didn't always write their own material and they didn't arrange their own material. So the producer's job was to hire a songwriter and hire an arranger and hire a contractor to get all the musicians in there and then to make sure that the session didn't run long. That was his biggest responsibility. And as it turned out, that's completely different from the role that George Martin played, for instance, in the making of the Beatles records. He was a Mm -hmm. musical contributor. He had an opinion about what they did, sometimes even played on their records. So Mm -hmm. it was, first of all, kind of like a readjustment in my head about what a producer was. And we hired a guy who we thought made good sounding records for our first records, and we didn't like the mix he made. So that was the first time I put my hands on a mixing console to remix our first record. Was this Money or Naz? This was Naz. Now, Money was my high school band. (laughs) (laughs) We never got a contract or anything. But uh, Naz, the Naz was supposed to be like the next monkeys, or at least in the minds of the people who signed us. You know, we were supposed to be a manufactured product. We were on the cover of 16 Magazine before we had ever made a record. So there was so much hype involved, and that was one reason why the band only lasted like 18 months. And then I found myself on the street, and the only skill that I had at that point, aside from playing and writing music, was that I had put my hands on a mixing console. And ironically, the partner of the manager of the NAS, who had departed and gone to work for Albert Grossman. Now, Albert Grossman is not a a household name nowadays, but back in those days, he was the world's most preeminent manager. He managed Bob Dylan, he managed the band, he managed Janis Joplin, and they needed somebody to take his old roster of folk acts and modernize them somehow. Such as? Well, such as Ian and Sylvia and James Cotton. But the uh, first project that I got put on was uh, an artist called Jesse Winchester. And he was a conscientious objector who lived in Canada from whence the band came. Mm -hmm. And so I got asked to engineer that record, and Robbie Robertson was the producer of the record. And they liked what I did so much that they hired me for what was the band's arguably their biggest album, Stage Fright. And that's where I really cut my teeth, learning to engineer serious records, not really a producer at that point. I was more of an engineer, but that became my forte. I didn't need an engineer to do a recording project. I can sit behind the desk and work the knobs and dials and all that stuff and also contribute musically to what was going on. Did someone teach you? Did you have a mentor or this you were self-taught? No, I, I have no fear of technology, put it that way. <laughs> You know, so when I was sitting in front of this sea of knobs and buttons, I thought, okay, I'll touch this one and I'll touch that one. and I'm going to touch every one of them. What does this do? (laughs) Yeah, what does this do? And then you turn it around and you hear, oh, it changes the sound this way. And then there are some other things you have to learn, like mic placement. That's a different skill. And that evolved a little bit more over time, figuring out exactly especially drums and things like that. Where do you put a mic to get the best snare drum sound? That sort of thing. And I eventually learned that. And Stage Fright was something of a breakthrough. And then I did Bad Finger and Grand Funk Railroad, and that's what really broke me as a producer. 
Now, while you're producing other people and you're heavily involved in that, you're making your own, your own music, is it a question of when someone calls you, I mean, were you more of a purist and you sat there and go, yeah, that's not my bag, that music, I don't really want to be a part of that. Were you for hire? You wanted to come in and you weren't too fussy? Like, What was the metric by which you decided who you would and wouldn't work with as a producer and a, as a, a mixer? Well, it's kind of um, the same as my choices as an artist. I want to do the things that nobody else will do or that nobody else can do. As an artist, because I was a producer, I never had to worry about my own music paying the rent. And so my own music doesn't follow any particular path. I get an idea. Get freedom. Yeah, I have complete freedom to do what I want as an artist because I was leveraging those skills to produce other people's records. And some of them were hysterically successful, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really didn't have to worry about the money when I went in to do my own stuff. But then I eventually gained a reputation as a troubleshooter, someone who would go into the studio, no nonsense, let's get a record done here. Right. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect is that I would do artists that nobody would touch, like Meatloaf. Remind people as to why nobody would touch him back then. Because the songs were all too long. None mm-hmm. of them were, seemed like singles to a record person. They were all very mm-hmm. long. He was a giant, fat, sweaty guy. He wasn't a handsome, mm-hmm. you know... He wasn't John Bon Jovi. No, he was not a Bon Jovi or a, any of those other pretty boys, things like that. And the subject matter had a certain kind of retro thing about it. Almost Brechtian, in a way. Well, to my mind, there was a weird combination of things. Jim Steinman, who wrote all the material for Meatloaf, he likened himself to Richard Wagner. He thought he was the (laughs) the Wagner of rock and roll. The rock and roll Wagner, okay. I more characterized him as the Stephen Foster of rock and roll. Because... (laughs) Okay. Because he just keep using these plain sevenths and things like that. You know, there are lots and lots of chords, but all of them are just plain triads and things like that. There's nothing harmonically super challenging about the kind of music that Jim Steinman wrote. But it was grandiose from a lyrical standpoint. I'm going to tell the story of the first time that I saw the band. And they had been turned down by every producer. The band essentially was... Jim Steinman on the piano, and Meatloaf, and two background singers. They performed the record for me, all of the music that had been turned down by everybody else. And I'm thinking, this is a spoof of Bruce Springsteen, and that's why I have to do it. Right. (laughs) This essentially is taking Bruce Springsteen's whole retro thing. I mean, he was on the cover of Time magazine, savior of rock and roll, and everything is about motorcycles and leather jackets and switchblades, you know, it's rebel without a cause. And I thought, you're saving rock and roll by going back 20 years. And then when I saw Meatloaf perform that, I thought, this is a spoof of Bruce Springsteen. And that's how I'm going to approach it. I'm going to take it totally seriously, but it's going to be way more than Bruce ever (laughs) attempted to do, you know. As it turned out, that was the only way to think about it because otherwise the record never would have gotten made. It was not my kind of music, naturally, you know. How so? Well, 
I didn't identify, first of all, with the rebel without a cause thing. You know, right. the whole leather jacket. These were the guys who beat me up in school. So I had no sympathy for that kind of, right. that kind of music. But also, I'm an acolyte of the Beatles and the arc of their career, in which they started out very simple, imitative right. you know, of their Covers. influences. Yeah, they were covering their influences and stuff like that. And then they kind of got pushed into a corner where they had to write their own material, but they didn't stop there. They started inventing genre, whole genres that other bands built their careers on, and then they would abandon them. It's like Eleanor Rigby classical rock. There was no such genre before that. And then whole bands would decide that they were classical rock bands and have orchestral backing for everything they did. Or, you know, psychedelic rock. They invented that with like Tomorrow Never Knows and then whole bands like Pink Floyd made a career out of it. But, but exactly. And I want to get to that in your life, the kind of, I'm not going to say the transcendental, but I don't want to lose line of this, uh, the line of this track, which is that when you leave NAS, you stopped working. You didn't want to work as a musician. You wanted to be going to computer programming. Well, I was always into computers when I was very young. As I say, I was a weedy child, and I tended to get picked on a lot. And when I saw the movie Forbidden Planet with Robbie the Robot, he had special powers and he could produce anything he wanted. And I needed, like, a best friend robot protector. And so (laughs) when I was very young, I started trying to figure out how I could build a robot. And once you, like, figure out the mechanics of a robot, you realize that it has to have a brain. And that's when I started to learn about computers. This was always like a sideline through my whole career because personal computers didn't exist then. Right. You could learn about them, but you couldn't have one, you know. So where do you you get one? Well, all through the 70s, that's when personal computers started coming in. Right. There was the Commodore PET, which actually looked like a cash register. Yeah. And uh, The first apples that were like big, looked like little TV sets. Yeah, I had one of the first computer kits ever made, which was called an Altair. And the only way you could communicate with it was through a teletype machine (laughs) that had a tape, a paper tape reader on the side of it. So I got into it very early. And then Apple, the Apple personal computer came out. And that was kind of a real breakthrough because it had a language built in. You turned it on and it was ready to take commands from you. Hmm. Uh, It had ways, easy ways to load software programs into it. So I learned to program the computer and eventually I developed a program that Apple marketed in like the early 80s because they had a piece of hardware called a graphic tablet. Mm-hmm. fairly commonplace nowadays, but it's a big square thing with a pen on a wire and you draw on that thing and whatever you draw appears on the computer screen. Hmm. And I first saw that at a place called the New York Institute of Technology, where all the people who eventually built Pixar and ILM, that's where they were before then. It was Ed Catmull and Alvy Ray Smith We're all working at New York Institute of Technology, and their big new development was a paint box program, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I got inspired by that, and I became a serious programmer. And Apple marketed the first program that I ever wrote, which was for this graphics tablet that Apple was going to market. 
Unfortunately, it failed its FCC emissions test, so the hardware never came out. So nobody ever bought the software because there was no hardware to run it on. Yeah. But in any case, that got me into that realm. But right on top of this, because you're so young then, I mean, you come out with something, anything in 1972. And this is right on the heels of you going into computers and you leave NAS and everything. Like, did all of a sudden success, obviously success realigns a lot of things, but you're considered a very, very purist artist. Mm -hmm. You got that whole vibe. You're a guy that had hit records, and then you went and said, well, I'm going to go over here. You know what I mean? You took off into another direction, and you didn't necessarily kind of coddle your audience or the industry like a lot of people do. But when this happened, what changed for you when you had success, big success in, in, in making music? Did anything change? Well, my biggest success was after Something Anything came out, the double album that was never intended to be a double album. I just, I got into this songwriting groove, and... They were just coming out day and night. I was recording and writing like 16 hours a day. And I had fallen into sort of a formula, you know, a certain kind of combination of things that you write about, you know, which is usually like the girl who broke your heart. And after it was done, it was highly lauded. And people started referring to me as the male Carol King, which is a high compliment. But also, I don't want to be compared to other people. I don't want to be the next anything. Yeah, I want to be, you know, eventually people will be compared to me. But I don't want to be compared to anything before. So the next record, which was A Wizard of True Star, was not like any record I had made and maybe not like any record anybody had ever made before Mm -hmm. because I completely deconstructed the process. And again, the only reason why I could do that was because I was still producing records for other people. When I didn't follow up something, anything with another batch of easily consumable pop songs, there was a complete freak out at the record label. They say, how do we sell this record compared to the last record? The expectations are in a completely other place. And I had no care for that. I was still producing a lot of artists for Bearsville Records, so they couldn't exactly kick me off the label, (laughs) you know. They were forced to indulge me, and that just turned out to be the whole modus operandi. You know, I was the fly in the ointment in some ways because I wouldn't stop making records. (laughs) Right. And yet they couldn't figure out how to market them And eventually they got into such a mindset that they completely overlooked hits on some of my records. Musician Todd Rundgren. If you love conversations with legendary singers, be sure to check out my talk with another musical icon, Daryl Hall. I'm busy, man. I'm I'm much busier now than I was. In fact, I don't have time to make a record. I've I've been trying to make a record, and I have to do it in little dribs and drabs and starts and stops. To try and get into a flow is really, really hard. Was there a spot in your career where you sat there and you go, this is it, man. This is the top. There was a period of time in 1985 where we did We Are the World. I reopened the Apollo Theater with The Temptations, Live Aid, all within a month and a half. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I I feel like I'm here. 
hear the rest of my conversation with Daryl Hall at heresthething.org. And find Daryl Hall and Todd Rundgren on tour together this spring. After the break, Todd Rundgren demonstrates why he's one of the most insightful and prescient artists in all of music and discusses his career as a psychonaut. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This is Bang the Drum All Day, one of Todd Rundgren's biggest hits. It's the seventh of nine tracks on his 1982 album, the ever-popular Tortured Artist Effect. The song was all but overlooked by his record label. Bang the Drum All Day was never released as a single. Never occurred to him. It was just one of my other, another nutty thing that I was doing. But the record promoted itself and made itself. 
DJs started playing it every Friday during drive time. And then somehow fans adopted it at sporting events. Anytime somebody wanted to create a party atmosphere, you know, even if it was like a movie like Ants, the song was never in the movie, but they used it for the trailer because it made the movie seem more fun, I guess. I think first at ice hockey games, and then it became like the Green Bay Packers touchdown song. And then it eventually became the Carnival Cruise Lines theme song, for which I got paid handsomely until they started sinking all those boats. (laughs) And I have no idea where the song came from. I mean, it's not like I sat down and said, I'm going to write this song. No, I actually dreamed the song. Sometimes when you start working, you know, and you get really embedded in the work, it permeates your subconscious to the point you never get away from it. And I was writing songs in my sleep, and this song just came to me. I'm wondering for you when you were young, because you go off on a different path, and certainly with Utopia in terms of the style of music, what was your Rishikesh? I mean, did you have a moment of drug experimentation and enlightenment and whatever it was that you were very young? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm trying trying to tread lightly here. I'm trying to tread lightly. I gained a reputation of something of a psychonaut at one point. I guess the a Wizard of True Star helped with that. Love and it that. was definitely, there was some psychedelic experiences that made me rethink music and what I wanted to do. And A Wizard of True Star was a result. But sometime after that, somebody sent me a shoebox full of peyote buttons. And I was high for a month. I, I would get up in the morning, I would clean three peyote buttons. And I have one for <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I was not straight for an entire month. And I did rehearsals and gigs and wiring my studio while I was doing that. While you were blazing. I know. It was one of the most amazing periods of my life. How does it stop? Meaning, do you stop or does someone else stop it? Who pulls the plug? I ran out out of of peyote (laughs) buttons. I ate all the peyote. I ate all the peyote and I was done, you know? You ate the Whitman sampler of peyote that you were given. Yeah. Take me through, if you can... You go into Utopia when? I was originally just a guitar player. I didn't have any confidence. I didn't have the confidence to sing or front a band. And, you know, when I quit the band, and I didn't want to put another band together, I didn't understand the politics of it, you know. And so I just went into production, and I... My first album was a vanity project. I didn't plan to do anything with it. And then I accidentally had a hit single. It was called We Gotta Get You a Woman. It was off of my very first record. So I had to rethink the idea of going out and performing. It got top 40, I think. And that's when I had to learn to perform. You know, I had, you got a hit single, you got to go out and play. And I couldn't sing 20 minutes without blowing my voice out. Really? Yeah. And you, and you never and you never thought about getting trained for that at all? Well, it started out as a mental thing. I never thought of myself as a front man, a gut person who would stand in front of the band and sing. I would sing background vocals, and I'd be happy with that. There were some things I knew about singing, a lot I didn't know about singing. Most importantly, the diaphragm. Right. And it took me a while to sort of figure it out. And I think the best education I ever got was from listening to a Stevie Wonder record, Sign Seal Delivered. What they used to do is compress his voice so much that you could hear every breath he was taking. 
And you could hear before he would sing a phrase how he would do this, you know, how his diaphragm would punch up into his lungs to create the necessary pressure in order to sing the song. The thing that never occurred to me. A lot of people don't realize that it isn't about your throat. It's about your diaphragm, your breath, how much breath you can put behind it. Trying to sing just with your throat and, you know, you'll get 20 minutes out of it and then it'll die. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a long time to learn how to do that. I remember, I think it was right around something, anything, because that was also about when I first started driving a car. And I was in L.A. and I would drive around the freeways screaming my ass off. I would just scream for 20, 30 minutes at a time while driving my car around. It must have looked pretty weird. But eventually, through doing that constantly and applying that when I was singing live, I built up my diaphragm to the point now that it's like ridiculous. Right. You know, it's, if you get that muscle in shape, you can sing forever. I can sing for three hours a night if I have to at the, you know, at the very top of my range, as long as I have the wind for it. Now, when you form Utopia and you decide to go in that direction, is it an idea of a direction you want to go in? Do you say to yourself, here's a kind of music I want to play now, and this is where my head is at now in my writing? Do you meet people that influence? How does Utopia congeal? How does that come together? As I was progressing as a songwriter, I started losing touch with the guitar because it's not as flexible a songwriting tool as a piano is. Because mm-hmm. the piano, you have all the notes there, mm-hmm. and you got 10 fingers, you know. Mm-hmm. The guitar has only got six strings. Were you a trained piano player? No, I was never trained. But I began to write on the piano, and it's a great songwriting tool. And I started to think that I was losing all of the effort I had put into trying to learn how to play the guitar and be you know, an effective guitar player. I was losing that, so I thought, I have to start a band just so I can play guitar more. Mm. You know, I still have my own thing, which is my songs and my stuff, but I want to start a group where, where my principal role is playing guitar. And a lot of the guys that eventually became part of Utopia, and also this is Utopia too, because there was an original Utopia with me and Hunt and Tony Sales, Soupy Sales kids. no. That lasted for like <laughs> just a couple of months or something like that. And it was really high concept, so high concept that we failed to pull it off. And that unit broke up, but then decided I still needed to have a guitar-oriented outlet. And that's when we started Utopian. And it was a lot of the people who had played on my records. A lot of this revolves around the studio that we built in New York called Secret Sound. <laughs> Where was that? Which was, that was in, you know, it was like 26th Street and maybe 7th Avenue. It was right near the Gramercy Park Hotel. A friend of mine, Moogie Klingman, he bought a loft. And we said, let's build a studio in it. It was like a, a very unusual thing because most studios were commercial enterprises. You know, it was expensive to build a studio, mm-hmm. but I just kept taking any money that I got and plowing it back into, you know, my projects and and tools for my projects. And so we built our own studio, and that's the very first thing recorded in there was a Wizard of True Star, and then it became our playpen. 
we would go in there and just fiddle around, write music, record little bits of it, splice it together later. There was nobody to tell us what not to do, so we would do anything that we could think of. And the first um, Utopia album, we just sat around the studio throwing ideas out on the floor and trying to turn them into songs. And part of what makes it so interesting musically is all it represents all the influences of each person, kind of collected under a prog rock banner. Mm-hmm. Well, but for me, that that time, if I thought about it, I could come up with probably a lot of speculation about why people were craving that music. I mean, music to me either is or is not related to the culture and the political spectrum. And, you know, Kennedy is killed. And I mean, a lot of people obviously think that the Beatles' ascension is linked to that. We need something happy. We need something sweet. We need those ballads. You know, well before we get to expert, expert, choking smokers, you know, all of the kind of poetry and yeah. insanity of Lennon and McCartney as they get older. Uh, wonderful insanity, by the way. But, you know, in the beginning with, like, Love Me Do and all those those things. There's, there's something about people, what people need. And at that time in the 70s, people really needed music to take them somewhere. They really needed to have music. You mentioned before Roger Waters and those guys. I mean, you know, they're... Pink Floyd, they, yeah. Pink Floyd. I mean, man, when I went to college... Everybody was laying on the floor with the biggest (laughs) joint in their mouth you could possibly imagine and with the headphones on, and they just had to listen to uh, that music to transport them. Did you feel when you were making the music with Utopia, your audience wanted you to transport them somewhere? Well, you know, I try to think of myself as an artist and as a true artist. We've talked about me as a producer, and as a producer, I have to be aware of the way that the audience may respond to the project that I'm responsible for. But when I'm making my own music, you know, and when I feel like I'm in my most artistic head, I'm not trying to manipulate people. I'm not thinking about them. I'm thinking about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to think, how can I make music that will satisfy me? How can I make music that won't be just simply a repetition of something someone else has done already? Which is two challenges right there, mm-hmm. to satisfy yourself, mm-hmm. you know, which is difficult enough, and that to not replicate something that's already been done. And I guess when you're talking about that, my mind is going to a different place. My mind is going to that place where music is meant for that individual experience. It's like you say... You may be in a dorm room with a bunch of guys getting high, but the music doesn't have an effect until you feel like you're alone with it. And the problem with music nowadays is it's like nobody's fault. You know, like human evolution is not really any individual's fault. It's part of our evolution. Part of it is the simple hardware evolution. The fact that the way we listen to music is not the way we used to listen to music. If you wanted a quality time music experience, it used to be you had to go home to do it, you know, and listen to your own 
the little hi-fi, yeah. you know, and, and that's what we did. A record that you were anticipating came out, and you sat in a sweet spot between the speakers, yep. and you put that record on, you listed it from beginning to end, you unplugged the phone, you didn't let anybody yeah. disturb you. only had you. one phone in your house back then. I had one in my kitchen. <laughs> it was a phone on the yeah. kitchen wall, and that was it. Yeah, but, I mean, the dynamic was that it was you and the music, and right. for you to really get your money's worth out of it. You and the music had to get down there alone and experience it together in a certain way. And eventually we came up with portable music systems like the Walkman mm -hmm. and things like that. Suddenly it was not a quality time experience anymore, but things have evolved so far to the point that so-called musicians aren't actually musicians. Music is the wedge you use to get yourself into the public consciousness. So you start out calling yourself a musician, but essentially you're just a merchandiser. You're selling shoes, hats, shirts, things yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, It's actually become a little bit more real in the sense that you're not pretending that the music is anything more than self-promotion. There is no pretense about the music being actually more important than people simply remembering your name. You know, it's, it's like the oldest axiom of advertising. Todd Rundgren, if you're enjoying this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and be sure to follow us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to all of the music from this episode and more in a curated playlist of my favorite pieces from Todd Rundgren. You'll find a link to the playlist in the show notes of this episode. When we return, Todd Rundgren tells us how anthropology factors into his songwriting. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade. 
with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This is It Wouldn't Have Made Any Difference, from Todd Rundgren's album Something Anything. Consumers have come to expect the ease and accessibility that today's streaming platforms give us to an infinite musical catalog. Incredibly, Todd Rundgren had the foresight to see where music technology was taking us, but he was slightly ahead of his time. I am a technologist and a theorist in some kind. And in the early, late 80s, early 90s, I started to gain some awareness that technology was going to take music to other places. I started thinking about other ways that music could be delivered. And I came up with this concept called No World Order, in which you could, as a listener, describe some parameters about the music you want to hear, and then this system would go out and find the music that satisfied your criterion. So I did a demonstration of that. It was called No World Order. It was released as a record, and there were various computer versions as well. And you could actually navigate the music if you had the right hardware. And I got approached by Warner Full Service Network, which was attempting to establish an interactive TV community in Orlando, Florida as a test thing. And we wanted to see whether people wanted to have on-demand music services. This is when you still had to buy music on a CD. So we went to all the major labels and said, we're just experimenting with a a community in Orlando, in Florida, to see whether there is demand for music that's delivered by some kind of criteria, something like that, designed the whole system, then went to the five major labels at that point, see whether they would put their music on servers so we could just experiment with it. All five refused. They said, we can't even imagine this, putting music on servers. Just it's beyond our comprehension, let alone explaining it to all our artists and the retailers that we have to deal Mm -hmm. with and stuff like that. And every single one of them refused. Two years later, Napster. Uh And that was the beginning of the end. Because they didn't see that music had to be on servers. Uh And that essentially collapsed what was the music business. And the end result is now you don't sell music. Music is, as I mentioned before, music is advertising for something else that you're selling. Uh 
that people seem to perceive as more valuable than the music, like a T-shirt, like a big puffy jacket, like some sneakers, <laughs> something like that. I mean, Kanye's bragging about the fact, not that he sold so much music, that he sold $2 million worth of his players that the music will be on. He's bragging about selling hardware, not music. And that's kind of where music has gotten to at this particular point. It's just part of putting forward a personal brand. And then once you have that brand, you sell anything and it doesn't have to be music. Do world events ever shape your music? Do they ever influence your music? I write my music about human nature. Right. My whole music is anthropological. Right. I'm trying to figure out why people think the way they think and why they do the things that they do. And that covers everything. Right. Yeah. That pretty much covers it all. Now, how would you say that the uh, shoebox full of peyote, peyote buttons, buttons <laughs> yeah, the big baggie full of peyote buttons, that was a while ago. Well, what do you do now to raise your consciousness? Are you into meditation? Like, what do you do now to achieve a state where you feel comfortable? I moved 25 years ago to the island of Kauai. And, that's it. and I live in heaven, <laughs> you know, there. Right. I hear you. Well, listen, I am a great, great admirer of your music and your career. And I, I don't know what it is, but like I went back and listened to so much, so much of your music and just that utopia phase of your career. I love that music. I love utopia. You know, some really, it takes you back to college, right? Which really, no, it's beautiful music. It's beautiful. It's, 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 it was beautiful music then and it still is. You are one of the great artists. You say you like to call yourself an artist. Well, everybody I know, when they think about you, they think about what a great artist you are and the diversity of your sound and the music you made. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Alec. My thanks to producer, songwriter, and musician, Todd Rundgren. I'll leave you with Love is the Answer from Utopia's album, Oops, Wrong Planet. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.